the Mojo Radio Show. We scour the planet to find the biggest names in health, creativity, wellness, strategy, brand, performance, management, and more. Turn this up. This is going to be crazy. This is Jason Overcome Redman. Hey, I'm Dave Acosta. Hi, this is Cal Newport, author of Deep Work. G'day, this is Ryan Park. I'm Batman. This is Ivan Davies from my town. I'm Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. And Lucas Fickendee. This is Tate Fletcher, Cage Fighter. Listen to Mojo Radio Show, or I'll be coming to see you. Then we ask them the big questions. Oh, man, this is such a great question. You've actually landed right on the mark. That's a, another really good question. It's great talking to some clever dudes, frankly. I've gone probably a little bit more in-depth with you than, uh, than I have in the book. I've done, like, 500 interviews, but nobody asked me about this. <laughs> oh, wow. And sometimes we talk about darts. There we go. Can I tell you, Dina, Gary's favourite sport is darts. How athletic is that? I think it's uh, interesting that it's your favourite, but I won't be judgmental. (laughs) Look, it's the only sport that I know of where a prerequisite is a pint of beer and a cigarette. Come on, let's be honest. The Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously. So you try throwing half a dozen darts in a row and just see how you go, Uh, my friend. But we hope you will. Welcome. I got my book. To the Mojo Radio Show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, a little program dedicated to helping you get your mojo working. Thank you for downloading us again. We do appreciate it heaps. Special hello to all our Patreon supporters. Bob came on board this week, a guy who travels a lot. He said he loves his commute now because he rips on the show. Awesome, Bob. Thank you for supporting us, mate. We appreciate it loads. To all our regulars out there, uh, 78, <laughs> 78 countries strong, including Dubbo, Wagga, Birchville, <laughs> Boring Tennessee, United States of America, uh, Swindon. And a special hello Newmarket. to Ningen, just outside Dubbo, population of about 300 where I was born. So yeah, it's, yep. it explains a lot. Anyway, <laughs> wherever you are in the world, uh, drop us a line on iTunes. Let us know you're out there. It makes a difference to us. The gang is in the house. The dulcet tones that opened the show, <laughs> fighting the good war. AP, were you on the campaign trail <laughs> again this weekend, mate? No, the campaigning is officially over. So can we call, officially call you Mayor Peters yet, though? That's what I want to know. No, you won't be calling me Mayor yet, but I have been polishing my orb just on the off chance that I should uh, sneak one over the line. <laughs> God help us. Uh, anyway, time to check our tickets with our driver, Robbo, another big week at the Voodoo Basement. Global domination of production and noise. Oh, of course. That's our, that's our motto. That's plastered <laughs> that's all over should, the wall. Well, you should actually use that as your motto. The, the actual motto itself is global, global domination from a leopard skin couch. That's basically the, that's the full thing, if you want to know the whole lot. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the Globo production. We're better than you and we know it. <laughs> hey, I, just quickly, I found a new anthem for the Voodoo Sound Studios on the weekend. Remember Stephen Seagulls, those guys we talked to back in episode four or five all those years ago that yep. used farm implements to do covers of songs? They've done a cover of Voodoo Child. So I kind of figure I'm going to turn that into a cool new jingle for the studio. You've got to love a good anvil. (laughs) Yes, you do. (laughs) Last week's guest, who I've got to say, I loved that interview. And as you may have heard, as the interview went 
uh, further into the evening for Matt. He was four <laughs> whiskeys in and it did get colourful. It did get interesting, but we got some great stuff out of it. And everyone who's a Patreon supporter will hear more of Matt in the backstage pass, which goes out. But anyway, uh, note, Matt has just become number one on the New York Times bestseller list and number one worldwide for the book we talked about called Thank You For My Service. So Wow. Congrats, wow. Matt. Yeah, well done. It's awesome. Congrats to all the guys at Black Rifle Coffee. Uh, we were so privileged to talk to Matt at the time of launch. The audio book is brilliant. I mean, I, it, it's Matt. If you like the interview, you'll love his book. He's, he's a real character. The Mojo Radio Show. Lola, we have a guest on the show this week. He's a strategist in getting things done. What do you have based on getting things done to get our mojo working. What do you got? How's this one? You have to find the most bizarre country music I have ever heard. Where do you find this stuff? But Honestly. isn't it good? Because the show's a bit rock and roll, obviously. It's a bit yeah. anvil. anvil. And wash washing tub. Oh, we could be a bit heavy on the anvil, one might say. Yes, we're a bit country. We're a bit gangster. It's a bit. Uh, it's a bit rap. But that guy is called Colt Ford. He is a country rapper, and I've got to say, he has so much cred in the country field. But I, I thought it was cool only because you like your experimentation, mm. i.e. Ivor Davies, i.e. Brian Eno, The Edge from U2, who are always taking Sonics and saying what... And I thought it was different, so I like like a bit of Colt Ford. I'm out in the tractor. Well, there you go. I I could listen to that occasionally, I guess. Robbo's Remarkable Facts. Let's go. All right, Remarkable Facts, shoot. You know at Voodoo Sound, we're constantly working to keep the noise down while while we're recording. Well, mm-hmm. I have found what could possibly... Well, it actually probably wouldn't be the best place in the world to record, but I thought this was interesting. Microsoft have just created the quietest room in the world. The background noise measures minus 20.35 dBA, which for those who understand audio will know. For everybody else, that's 20 decibels lower than what the human ear is capable of hearing. If you stand in it for long enough, you can hear your heartbeat. A ringing in your ears becomes deafening. When you move, you can hear your bones grinding and eventually you lose your balance because the absolute lack of reverberation sabotages your spatial awareness. How freaky is that? That's insane. Isn't it? Absolutely. The quietest room in the world. They reckon if you stand there long enough, you can actually hear your blood pulsing through your veins. Insane. Actually, that is remarkable. I wonder I wonder where that will end up. I wonder how they're going to use it. Yeah, I wish I knew. But actually, I've got something for you. Uh, same but different. Different is good. You would know Little Sipper being the Instagram guru that you are. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... Uh, She's an Instagram person, better known as Bethany Ugarte. To her followers, she's known as at Lil Sipper. Anyway, the point is, this was put in in a blog, since I don't follow this person, but a Mm. pear-shaped and bumpy skin avocado contains smaller seeds, which means more avocado. A round-shaped and smooth skin 
contains a larger seed that means less avocado. So if you like your avocados and you are fat adapted and avocados is a wonderful food, if you go in, if it looks pear-shaped and it's got a bumpy skin, grab it because you get more for your value. And it's something like mm. two-thirds more. And I, I've got to say, the reason I share this, I find it quite remarkable that this is a thing, is I have bitched and moaned to myself in my own little head, which is quite scary, <laughs> about how you open an avocado up and it's all seed. And I go, well, why? what's happening mm-hmm. to avocados? Are we just being mm-hmm. ripped off? We're paying two or three bucks Australian for an avocado and it's all seed. Well. If you want to, I want to hack it. Find pear-shaped, bumpy-skinned, more avocado. Avocado. Did you know that? Wow. Did you know that? I'm going shopping right now. To the Mojo Radio Show. It's close. It's just around the corner. Chris McChesney is considered by many to be the world's number one strategists on the topic of execution. Now, without getting stuff done, you can have a brilliant strategy, but it's nothing more than a plan that will never see the light of day. When I contacted Chris, it made me think of a show we did, I think, think back in season one was a guy called Dr. Adam Fraser said that something like 63% of strategies never see the light of day. And I would say having worked with thousands of companies in doing all this, I would say I reckon it's even higher. So the question for Chris was how do you motivate people to deliver on your most strategic priorities. Now, the reason this is a great conversation is Chris is about to head to Australia, heading down under to see us, uh, and I'll give you the dates of his of his tour shortly. He's a Wall Street Journal number one best-selling author, only because people see him as being the expert in discipline, and the book is called The Four Disciplines of Execution, and he's probably also the most I guess, sought after speaker around the world on execution, getting stuff done, which is why he's coming down under to see us here. Uh, So, Chris, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I appreciate it. When people meet you, Chris, for the first time, walk up and ask you what you do, how do you like to reply? Oh, I hate that question. Oh, man. (laughs) Uh, uh, I always understand too much, right? I avoid it at all costs, but if they pin me down, if they like make me, you know, I, I, I try to explain my field as, you know, helping leaders execute when it requires a change in people's behavior. That's the fewest number of words I've been able to get it into. Okay. We'll take that. You, you if I take you back into early part of your career, you said that in that career, you fell in love with the problem. What was the problem you fell in love with? Yeah, it was when you and I were talking earlier. I think you actually fit pretty well. It's it's this it's the the frustration around the good idea that doesn't happen, and you're sort of left scratching your head around. All right, was it the strategy or was it execution? 
and and that whole pain around if we could just do you know if we could just get behind half of the great ideas you know would be fantastic or worse yet you don't know if it was execution or if it was the strategy you kind of you're playing with two variables and so mm. that we didn't know how to describe it back in the day but we felt like every leader deals with some form of that problem it's interesting when i talk to people like you chris because it's not just the fact that you studied it then you wrote a book about it but then because you go out and do so much work around the world speaking about it, you hear and see stories of people who are going through all this. From your observations, having written the book now, travelling around, from your observations today, what is the biggest dilemma we face with the discipline of executing our plans? I believe this has its origins 10 years before the book came out. We started to recognise... At first, we had 12 what we called root cause problems. Like everything looked like it was the thing or it was contributing to breaking execution. Now, down. But there was this one issue that seemed to be at the heart of everything. And it it wasn't a business problem. It was a human problem. And it was this propensity that all of us have to move to the urgent, even at the expense of something that's a lot more important. And that one little dynamic seemed to show up, and everybody's experienced it, right? You're on this critical project. You know it's the most important thing you're going to do all year, and you just replied to that text message, or you just opened that link, or you just answered that phone, and am I I out of my mind? Am I crazy? We know that, but what we started to recognize is that this urgency fix, this need that human beings have to respond to all the urgent things, was so pervasive, it was affecting everything, and that nobody really gets a pass on this because the day job is always more urgent than any strategic priority. It may not be as important, but in the moment, it always feels more urgent. So sorry for the long answer, but that seemed to encompass the problem, and it's been consistently reinforced You know, for now going on 18 years. We're consistently seeing that as the primary issue. I've heard you say that important always fights with urgent. In your mind, who is winning today? We had a problem with this 30 years ago, 50 years ago. Today, like, you can be distracted <laughs> going to the bathroom. You, we can get it. We can get at you anywhere. Like, the number of distractions, uh, it seems to be getting, I mean, it seems to be getting worse. I, 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 and everybody seems to say that. As a matter of fact, companies, clients of ours all want to say and we describe this, by the way, we call it the whirlwind, right? All the things that are acting on you all the time. And everybody likes to argue that theirs is the worst. You have no idea what we do. Every day we pull off the miracle. There's so much going on right now. So, yeah, it seems to be, it doesn't seem to be, it doesn't seem to be getting easier. Do you know, you just said that this problem was 30 to 50 years ago. You were thinking about this. And before I sort of jumped down that off-ramp, it made me think about you, you as a kid, Chris, because you you referred to yourself as a Ritalin kid. And I'm curious to say that back then you were the kid who was distracted. In your life as we sit here today, how how have you overcome the tendency to be distracted in your own world? Wow. Um, wow, what a question. I'll tell you, 
Every, it doesn't matter if you write a book on the topic. Every time I bet against focus, I seem to lose. Like, you know that feeling where you go, I can do one more. We can do, we can, we can do this. We can go a little further. We can, I always lose. And so I, I always sort of look at myself as the person who needed the four disciplines of execution more than anyone. I've got a co-author, Jim Hewling, who's the embodiment of this. He is cool and disciplined and he's clear. And, he, and, and, I, and I'm, <laughs> I'm the idiot that needs the, the medicine more than anyone. And so I just tell you, it's been a constant struggle. But you know, eventually you start to respect the, the laws of the universe. And you start to say, okay, you know, despite my frantic personality and, and, and enthusiasm and my love of the next new shiny thing, I'm going to, I'm going to focus. And, you know, I, I just had to, I've just had to humble myself to that law of the universe. Before we go into the, the systems and the processes and structure around this, Chris, I'm interested in the psychology of it because I think yeah. we all go through that moment where it's just one more. And we had a guy who was terrific, a guy called John Zaratsky on the show who wrote a book called Make Time with Jason Knapp. These guys came from Google and YouTube and they, their job was to design stuff to distract us until they left to say that stuff that they're doing is taking us into what they call the infinity pool where it's just a quick glance, I'll just do one more and then an hour and a half later somehow you're looking at cats on the beach. And... <laughs> I'm interested in your. I'm interested in your perspective. You personally, you just said it's just one more Oreo, but you kind of know that if I do one, the packet's gone. How do you deal with that? Awareness and choice, right? Um, until you're aware, you don't have much of a choice. You know, the animal stimulus and response are really closely connected in animals because they lack self-awareness. Right. They're they're into response. They, there's no deliberation. And Stephen Covey, our founder, used to say that all the principles of effectiveness live in the space between stimulus and response. And the more space you can get, the more awareness that a person has. And, and sometimes the, sometimes it doesn't work in that order. Sometimes it goes stimulus response and then you create the space. Right. Then you go back and say, OK. I, I, I've opened the email, I've gone, and then you have to course correct. And I think sometimes, you know, until it starts to become a habit. And, and I've, I've had people, matter of fact, I had a, a dear friend of mine that um, she, she was, we were never boyfriend and girlfriend, but she was this really, really super close friend. And she knew me and she knew all my faults and the, you know, the horrible grades and the disastrous stories and she she was just aware of the train wreck that was my youth and she she sent me a really nice note about how much change that she's seen in my life and and I can't tell you and, and I, I was very complimented by it I, I still feel like things are a disaster all the time but I, I think I think it was slow I think slowly over time um, people start you know, people start to respect these principles. So I, I don't know if I'm giving you a good answer or not, but but I, I know it has something to do with that gap between stimulus and response, and it has a lot to do with just staying really aware, even if you're not great at it in the moment. I think it's gold. I actually think that that is 
executional gold, Robbo. I don't like executions, though. They're not nice. Well, actually, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take an off-ramp here, and I'm hoping Chris will stay with me on this, but I think it's gold 180. Gold 180? <laughs> I'm going to tie a few things together here. You're just making it up as you go along now. Seriously. No, no. I, I, do it. You go, man. What I want to do is I want to introduce darts. Oh, of course you do. Yeah. How <laughs> no, stupid no, but of stay me. with me. Why right? didn't I see this coming? Chris, we had a guest on the show called Akshay Nanavate, who's a former US Marine who wrote a book called Fear Varna. And he was just, he was Marine gold. Anyway, he told the story of the Buddha. And the Buddha had a, a principle that he spoke of called the second dart. And he said, you throw, the first dart is what happens. The second dart, before you throw it, you need to think about how will I react? What will I do? The reason I tie this to gold 180 is that the stimulus is the first dart. Before you throw the second dart, you think about your response. So you take a breath, which creates the space. That's what I'm hearing. And I think that's such a a great piece of advice is that we just get on and we open up Instagram. Before we know it, we are just throwing darts. We never have the awareness to stop and go, okay, is this really value? Is this really important? Does that, is, is, are those two, two things sort of wrapped together with this stimulus response, the space in between to create space? Yeah, I think, I think we're right at, Right, ground zero when it comes to human effectiveness. I mean, I I go as far. I mean, you really got. I, we can ditch the four disciplines and we can go here for an hour if you want. Like you're. This is. <laughs> I love this topic. This is why. This is why I worked for Stephen Covey for free for four months before they figured out I was a stowaway. Like it was this issue of am am I just being controlled by the environment? It was like free will versus determinism. Like this was the topic right here. And I, I believe that, you know, your ability to exercise and make choices based on your values instead of stimulus, like you can reverse engineer people who are consider themselves failures and people that have accomplished great things. And I, I, I think that, that it will correlate beautifully to that idea of whether or not whether a human being is able to make and, and act on their values or whether they are just, a, you know, a creature, a, 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 you know, being determined by their environment. I, I, I really think that's the, the whole thing is right there. And, what's it, well, and I'll just say this last thing. We don't try and overcome that issue with the four disciplines. Like we're not trying, we're not, we're going, <laughs> we're working with, the flawed human experience. We're not trying to fix it. And so as we, as we get into the discipline, I, I, don't let me forget to sort of come back to say, look, we're not, we're not trying to overcome the urgency addictions. We're actually going to, we're going to work around them. We're going to work with them a little bit. We're not, we're not trying to rewire human beings. Just to get us on a, on a, on a, a side road here, just for a second, Chris, you've got seven kids, right? <laughs> Seven. Was just one yeah. more. Jeez, I've got five. Yeah, yeah Robbo's just cashing oh, his chips because you've great. got seven. Yeah, 20, 27 to nine years old. Uh, I've got 16 down to one. Ooh. Okay, you have a harder road right now, brother. Robbo's working on a full rugby pack, so he's still got a few more. He's still pumping them out, but um, we've got almost a back line. Mate, I've um, got to say, you've just gone to the top of my guest list with seven kids. That's amazing. 
Is that a scrum? Uh, one short. One <laughs> short of a scrum. Yeah. Take out the one number eight. Scrum, that's great. Uh, here's my question. We've talked about that we've gone darts. We've talked about stimulation, response, creating space, awareness and choice. I, I think that is such valuable gold. My question is this little side road we're going to take just for a minute is how, how have you gone about teaching a son or daughter about the topic that dad is seen to be a world expert in? Like growing up, how, how have you gone about getting this message through to your kids? Because if, you know, Cal Newport said on the show that focus is the new IQ, how are you going about teaching your kids in the home about the stuff that you are being paid good money to stand on stage and talk to executives about? First of all, you say something like that, and the first thing you're aware of is, is, is how much you don't do. Like every parent immediately takes inventory of that. But I am, I am holding in my hand a piece of glass, and it looks like a sales trophy, but it was my Christmas present from the kids this year. And the one thing that I have tried to do as a parent, and amongst all the things I've screwed up at, is I've tried to get one-on-one time with them. And, and sometimes it's, it's three or four different one, kids a weekend doing something. It's breakfast. It's running some errands. But that's been my, my, my single focus as a parent. Is one, I, I make no progress with those kids when I've got a couple of them with me. Until it's one-on-one, nothing moves forward. This is my, this is my one rule of parenting. And the, and the piece of glass I'm holding says the Windshield Talk Award to Christopher McChesney, and it's got a little picture of a sports car. And at the bottom it says, in quotes, and there's a story behind this, it says, it all makes sense in the passenger seat of dad's car. And, uh, I mean, if there's fire, there's a lot of stuff's going to get left behind, but this thing's not going to get left behind. And, and, and that's actually, it was originally, that quote was originally said tongue-in-cheek to one of the kids that really felt great, and the other one was like, oh, yeah, sure, you just talked to Dad. It all makes sense in the front seat of Dad's car. But it was like the inclination was, yeah, in an hour, none of it's going to make sense. <laughs> uh, but, but anyway, so I, I will say, you know, we've, we've had an aunt, and my dad, I, my dad used to do this with me. My dad was a contractor, and I, I used to have a lot of windshield time with my dad when we, when we were grabbing supplies and going from job site to job site. And he, he, would, he was very Socratic. And he would ask me questions and, and he would, he would make me think. And I, and I kind of hated it as a kid, but now I'm, I'm probably more grateful than, for that than anything. So that the topic of conversation was always a principle. What's the application of the right, right? If, if I don't have influence, maybe it's because I'm not allowing myself to be influenced. Like that's a principle. Like, so there was always one of those would find its way into the conversation from time to time. And, but, but so, yeah, so you, you kind of hit a, you kind of hit a tender spot with me one-on-one time with the kids talk about a principle. Um, Stephen Covey used to say, we're not in charge down here. Principles are, if there's something in our life, we're not happy with find the principle we are violating. It says a lot about our difference in parenting styles that you get that award made of glass. And for father's day, the other week here in Australia, I got something made of glass, but it was a cookie jar. <laughs> <laughs> he took the cookie from the That's cookie jar, you That's fat bastard. Um, Chris, say you have one of your younger children or 
your eldest child, say you have windscreen time, which I think is just absolute stoic gold, and knowing all you know in the world about getting stuff done, and we know that anyone who can get stuff done is going to write their own ticket in whatever they choose to do, and in that very quiet moment at a set of lights, your young one looks to you and says, Dad, just give me the one principle that I should never, ever forget to make sure I get stuff done. What principle would you drop? Two hours ago, I'm having this conversation with my wife, and she was asking me, what are you going to say to Ben? He's finishing a church mission. He's been over there in slums for two years. He's going to come back and kind of get on with his life. And the number, the thing that the number one thing at the top of my list is don't become discouraged with failure. The, 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 the solution to any complex problem is always comes through trial and error and it stinks to fail and it hurts to them. And we resist it. And if that kid, if Ben, who's, who's likable and smart, but easily discouraged, if Ben can, can learn to fight through discouragement he can do amazing, beautiful things in his life. This, this is a really sweet, great kid if he can just overcome that. And, every, I mean, I would ask any of your listeners to just think about the best thing, the thing they're most proud of, and see if it, wasn't, it isn't just a trail of mistakes. And, and, and it, I think discouragement is the killer. I've got to say, you, uh, you've come out of the gates with a fair few golds already, mate. Um, I'm going to get Robbo to put the big red bus back on the highway again and go down execution lane uh, to execution town. Gallup said that only one in seven people in a company can name an important goal for their company. One in seven. What's going on here, Chris? Oh, man. We were so into data like this 18 years ago. <laughs> I'm trying to catch up. We, we, yeah, no, no. I mean, really, we like we went way down this rat hole. We we had one scenario where we where we had a head of a, of a sales organization who said everyone in my organization, and he said, "I'll give you maybe ninety percent can all tell you what our top priority was." And then we actually did the research. We surveyed them, and it came back that the answer he was looking for came back at four percent. Not 90%, 4%. And then he said, he said, well, I want to see the other answers. He said, show me, you know, he said, show me the other 50 responses. And so they went down the list of 50 and they were like, oh yeah, we said that. Yeah, and we said that, but that wasn't a goal that we talked about. <laughs> like they weren't making anything up. <laughs> it was all stuff that they said. So there's so much noise. And one of the very, the very first discipline is really about creating a really clear distinction between the 500 things that have to be sustained, that can be, they're critically important, but it's really a sustainment function versus the one thing we're going to blow the doors off of. And if that distinction isn't created, when it, you, if you just talk about focus, you just chase your tail. You, because those, those 500 things in the whirlwind, in the day job, they're real and they're going to act on you and you got to spend time on them and you got to talk about them. But that's different work. That's a different treatment than the, the way you attack 
the, the one thing where you're going to create a breakthrough. And that, that's the whole off-ramp into the, the methodology around the four disciplines. You have to acknowledge, you've got to, you've got to be okay as a leader with the fact that you're not painting on a blank canvas, that 80% of their energy is already being spent just holding down the fort. That, 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 that you've got this, if you're lucky, you've got this little bit of discretionary time that you can pry away from the day job. And that's all you have to really drive your strategy as a leader. And let me tell you, that's a hard pill for leaders with big plans to get their head around. But it is the truth. So if I have that 20% to play with and I'm a guy who has – I don't know, an asbestos removal company and I've got 10 guys working for me or I've got yeah. an online business that sells pet supplies and I've got 20 people working for me, some in the office, some in the factory. That 20% of discretionary time and I want to set down a one-pager because I don't want to be in that, that one out of seven and I've heard yep. people say that between 60 and 70% of strategies never see the light of day according to the, the yep. big four accounting firms. I've got that 20%. Is, is part of that not overgoaling, Chris, and actually being, back to your point, well, yeah. being very disciplined? Is that, is that kind of where you're going with this? Yeah, well, you're teeing it up beautifully because if you take that 20% and, and now you're starting to, to piece off that 20% against five or six different objectives, it's ludicrous, right? If, if, you, if you're living under the delusion that you have 100% of their time and energy, yeah, you can talk yourself into five or six objectives or goals. And, and by the way, there may be a half a dozen metrics on the sustainment side. Don't, this is, this is where we lose people sometimes. You may have a whole bunch of critical key performance indicators that are part of the sustainment 80%. Just because something is a metric doesn't mean it has to be a goal for optimization. And what we're saying is, and, and it's not just us that's saying this. If you look at great operators with proven track records, you'll see this pattern that they bifurcate. They, they create a delineation in their head between all of the metrics, all of the stuff that has to be done to maintain the operation, right? Whether it's the asbestos company, whether it's the pet store, right? They've got processes. They've got stuff they've got to do just to stay afloat. And then a wise, a wise operator says, okay, What's the plus one? What's the one thing if we put, you know, deliberate discretionary energy against? And you know what? It's the callback service. It's the, you know, it's, it's, what, it's the way we're interacting with the client when we first get there. It's the set of calls, right? What part of the operation do we want to, you know, spend the next four to six months getting really good at? And, and while everything else is holding ground. And you'll see this with great operators. Like they're saying no to stuff all the time because they're going to stay on target, stay on target until they land that one plane and then they'll land another plane. But they're, they're never trying to land two planes at the same time, typically. With great operators, we've seen this pattern. Don't land two planes. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And you, get, and you got 30 of them in a holding pattern. Yeah. Right? They're yeah, all no, I, I think and you're tracking them. Those are your KPIs. But when you got to land them, Bring them down one at a time. God, it's against gold. You, you just talked about metrics and measurement, and I heard you say if we don't track results, we lie to ourselves. Do some people 
really just not want to know, Chris, that they go, well, if I don't know how we're going, then it won't show me up because it just seems that not many people track where they're going. They have a two-day offsite, set all these grandiose plans, but when you check in with them in 30, 60 or 100 days, they've got no clue where they're going. Do some people just not want to know and intentionally lie to themselves? It looks that way from the outside, but I don't think it's conscious at all. I think what tends to happen is there's actually a lot of metrics in most operations once they've grown past adolescence. Like once they've got a couple dozen people, it doesn't take much, and they're measuring everything. The problem is it has nothing to do with the goal. Like all the metrics seem to live over in the day job. And when it comes to the strategy, when it comes to the plus one, and here's the watch out, they're trying, the leader finds themselves trying to execute on a philosophy or a concept instead of a clear, measurable target. And it's sort of the first great sin in execution. And you love the concept because it's got, you can talk about it in cool ways and you've really refined your speech and you like listening to yourself talk and everybody tells you how great it is. And then nobody does anything. Like you say, you're, you do your speech and then they smile at you and thumbs up and tell you how great you are. And then you leave and 30 seconds later, they're all back in the whirlwind doing exactly what they were doing before you showed up. And, and it's, you know, it's getting leaders to say, oh, okay, I, 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 I get that it's a concept right now. And we, you know, but what would it look like in the form of a target? Like, how do I know? And, and maybe there is no one target that perfectly represents the concept, but I'm going to pick the very best one that I can. And that, that, starts the, that really starts the process right there. But sometimes that's a real struggle. But that, that's sort of the first psychological step, we think, is get, get it out of philosophy the language of execution is targets. I got a starting line, a finish line, and a deadline on this thing. It starts to get real. You've said the most strategic work you do will seem like you are wasting time. Why is that? Okay, in the moment. Oh, this is, an, this is a really interesting paradox. And, and there was a book written, um, Stephen Covey co-authored it, but it was led by a guy named Roger Merrill. In the early 90s, he wrote a book called First Things First. And in there, he talked about a, a, a phenomenon he called urgency addiction. And he, and he said it had all the markings of a gambling addiction, of a drug addiction, an overeating addiction. And it's really quite a fascinating little piece that he wrote up on the urgency addiction. And I think everybody had to a small degree. As long as we're putting out fires, we feel productive. And... It feels good in the moment versus I'm going to spend energy on a strategic initiative that's not giving me any immediate dopamine hit at all. Matter of fact, not only is this thing not giving me any dopamine hit, I'm watching fires burning down the hall that I can be addressing. I'm, there, are, there are crises right now I could be dealing with, and I'm spending time on this non-urgent, important thing. And in you have to, and everybody, I bet you everybody that's listening has, has had to talk themselves into staying on a project. They've had to convince, no, no, Chris, this is the most important thing you're going to do. You can do this. You can, it's just another 30 minutes. You can do this. And our skin's crawling because we feel like, like it's this weird thing. 
And, and so here's the paradox. Even though it's hard to spend that non-urgent energy, that strategic energy on something besides the quick, immediate fire, it's hard in the moment. But at the end of the week, when you look back over the week, if your whole week has been nothing but firefighting, oh, that stinks. That feeling of being out at the end of the week and going, I don't think I got anything done. Like, that's an awful feeling versus knowing, all right, you know what? We're, you know, we're, we're a third of the way through a really difficult strategy. And I think we can see daylight right now. I think, I think, I think we're actually making progress. Like that feeling, um, Frederick Hertzberg in the 1960s said, he, he, I defined this thing called the progress principle. And he said the number one driver of morale and engagement is when a person feels like they're making progress towards meaningful work. And when you hit the end of the week and you can't find that, that stinks. But ironically, in the moment, it feels great. Um, and then Jim Rohn said the, 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 the discipline, uh, the, sorry, the pain of discipline is better than the pain of regret. And it takes discipline to act on non-urgent things in the moment. So if you get to the end of the week and you've been fighting fires all week, does that mean you're burnt out? Imagine coming home and telling your 14-year-old daughter, Tabitha, I killed myself this week. I didn't get a thing done. Like, every working person knows kind of what that feels like. And it, it, it's, it's a hard, dark, like, we fact people hate the most is futility. Like, that's a really good word for recognizing if you're about to burn someone out. It has tends to have way more to do with the feeling of futility than it does actually how much they're working when they burn out. And so that feeling of, I killed myself all week, but I don't have anything to show for it. And, and what's funny about the 14-year-old is they have no idea what you're talking about. Like every other working person gets it, but that 14-year-old looking at you like, I didn't get anything done either, but I wasn't working all week. Right? You should have hung out with me, Dad. Yeah, 14-year-olds don't get us anyway. <laughs> if I step through where we've been, Chris, you've talked about that 20% that that discretionary time we have to put the one to, to land the one big plane, then you've talked about putting a target on that so that we we know where we're at. There's a question I heard you ask, which I think anybody listening to this who thinks they've got that, because when I heard this question, I thought actually that really that really separates the wheat from the chaff is how are you going with your lead metrics? And I reckon that question to me summarizes, well, do you know what the lead metrics are? How many planes are you trying to land? And I suspect having too many lead metrics would mean that you're not playing in the 20% with one target. You're probably playing in the 80% with lots of stuff going on. Is that a fair, if I chunk this down and do it into the way people can start to set this up, would that be a fair assessment of where we've been? Yeah. I, I think so. If you, yeah, let's go, let's go into this lean measure thing a little bit because this is really where real execution happens. And the easiest way to think about it, I think, is to stay in a weight loss scenario, right? And I'm, I'm sorry if it's overplayed, but it, it really works here because everyone knows exactly what we're talking about. If the, if the goal is to go from 195 pounds 
to 180 pounds by January 1. Right? So you heard a starting line, you heard a finish line, and you heard a deadline. That weight, that is the lagging output, the lagging measure. It's really critical. It's easy to measure. All we have to do is step on the scale. It's, it's important and it's easy to measure. And those are the type of metrics that tend to get attention in most organizations or what we call lag measures. Lead measures, and, and even those that haven't heard this before, they know where I'm going. Lead measures have to do with diet and exercise. And there's different choices that you can make about how you do it. But here's the point. It's not about whether you know how to diet and how to exercise. It's not about how committed you are to diet and exercise. It's not even about how much willpower you have around diet and exercise. Because typically willpower goes about four to five weeks and then it fades. What matters is do you know the data around the lead measure, right? In other words, everybody knows diet and exercise. The people who are losing weight are the ones that actually know how many calories they've eaten today and how many calories they've burned. And, and you can prove this because I'll bet everybody listening, maybe 95% of, of everybody listening, knows someone that's lost over, you know, whatever the kilo version of pounds is, right? An enormous amount of weight. The question is, that person, did they just have an understanding of diet and exercise or were they actually counting and tracking the data? And this, this has application. You can't believe how many places this is applicable to. In the absence of knowing the data, what the human brain does is it, is it lies to you. Right? Uh, uh, we call it confirmation bias. It just tells you, right, because you get on the scales and you go, oh, that can't be right. You know, I, I, I didn't, I didn't eat one time this week and I'm sure I, I think I exercised like three, maybe four times. Uh, I'm not sure this diet exercise thing actually works for me, or maybe these scales are broke. And we, and in our brain, we remember all the times we did the right thing. We don't remember when we didn't. And so once you've got the goal, the second discipline is, do you have the discipline to not just, not just have a plan? But can you actually track metrics that, if achieved, would get you the goal? Because those leading measures, you can actually act on them. You can do something about them. weights byproduct. And so that's what that's why you know all the work we do in discipline one really is just to set up discipline two. Discipline two, the lead measures is where is where the real action and the real energy hits. As you have probably gained from being on the show for the last half hour or 40 minutes or so, Chris, that the only way I can really get action from the studio is to relate this for Robbo back to food. So what I need to do is I need to connect this execution to food. You mentioned the principles of one of your mentors, Stephen Covey, and he uses the analogy of growing tomatoes. What can we as leaders of a company learn from growing tomatoes? Covey used to play this, I don't know if it was a trick, but it was fascinating to watch him work with executives. He, he, he would get, you know, a group of type A super executives to brainstorm growing world-class tomatoes. And you have them at tables and they thought they were competing and they could, they could come up with, I've watched them do it several times. They could come up with lists of things, all the creative things they would do to grow a world-class tomato. And he'd have them report out. They, they, I think they thought it was a creativity exercise. 
And then he would ask him this really interesting question. He'd say, um, can you guarantee me, can you guarantee that the tomato will grow? Given all that with your irrigation systems and your chemicals and your greenhouse and your fertilizers, can you guarantee the tomato would grow? And it was great because there was never any debate. They would all say, no, we cannot guarantee the growth of the tomato. And then second question you'd ask them is, why can you not guarantee, with all that you've done, why can you not guarantee the growth of the tomato? And they knew the answer to the second question too. And the answer they would always give is, because the life is in the seed. And he would say, okay, that's what great leaders understand. Great leaders can do a lot to create the conditions for success, but they, they can't actually, they cannot control it. The life is in the seed. The life is in the person. You, your job as a great leader conditions for success, and not every seed is going to grow, and you've got to be okay with that. But if you do all those things, you usually get pretty great tomatoes. And so, anyways, I always, I, I always loved that little analogy when of trying to manage human beings instead of growing them. Tomato. Tomato, gold. Chris, with all you've done and all you are doing right now, how have your ideals of execution changed in your mind in the last couple of years? Dude, you know, these hard questions, man. (laughs) (laughs) I like this. What they can't see is I'm actually in the fetal position in the corner right now. Rocking. There's a lot of rocking going on right now. Um, all right. I'll, I'll tell you what. You know, um, it's, it's really less about the tactics. And um, another mentor of mine uh, named Mahan Khalsa um, wrote a book, uh, Let's Get Real and Let's Not Play. And wow, we, we, we bought this guy's company. We just love this guy's insights. Um, particularly if you're in consultative selling, Mahan Khalsa is the best we've ever seen. Um, he had a great expression. He said, intent counts more than technique. And, um, you know, that's obviously not true with engineering, <laughs> but with people, it's a big deal. Intent counts more than technique. And, and there was an intent behind the leaders that did a really good job with the four disciplines. And it was about two things, right? When you, when you, when you got this plus, you got this wildly important goal, you got this thing you're trying to have a breakthrough on. The two intents that really seem to make all the difference every time, even if people went about it differently than how we prescribed, was these. Number one, have we created a win game or not? And there's a lot of questions people won't honestly answer when you ask them, right? Do you like goal? Are you on board? Yes, boss. Yes, boss. Do you feel like this is a winnable game? They'll answer that one honestly. They'll tell you if they can't see it. So that's number one. Is it a winnable game? And, and by the way, to get that, you have to let them participate in defining the game. That's part of the methodology. That's number one. Is it a winnable game? And then number two, is it a high stakes game? Is there a little bit of a, is there a little bit of a lump in your stomach? Like all of us, we're drawn to a little drama, right? Our favorite movie has a terrible villain or a horrible challenge, right? Like it's got to matter. Is it winnable and does it matter? And if, you, if you've got those two things, you'll do an amazing job with the disciplines. Like, even if you don't do it the way we prescribe it, 
you won't go far off if in addition to all the things you got to do to maintain the operation, when you're going through a breakthrough, can you keep it a winnable game? Can you keep it a high stakes game? And I, I don't mean that to trivialize 18 years worth of work, but damn it, that's the bottom line. In your book, you talk about doing more with less. Are you, are you a minimalist? Like, do you buy into the whole essentialist perspective, Chris? Yeah, right after we have our eighth child, I'm going to go there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to get that rugby scrum going. I okay. mean it. And this time, I mean it. Oh, I, I watched I watched a great doc. I watched a documentary on this, and and there's a lot about that. I'm thinking about it. I'm really not, but I'm thinking about it. And um, it, there's a lot. There's a. I think there's a lot to be said for it. Just so much. I'll tell you. There's certain areas where I'm done with the baggage. Like there's parts of my life where there's friendships, there's relationships. Like I hit. I'm 52. And turning, I don't know how old you guys are, turning 50, like, I don't know, that was like a blessing. That was like a gift. Like, I just, like, 70% of the stuff I worried about people thinking, I just, for some reason, on my 50th birthday, I lost it. Uh, so I think in a lot of ways, I, I really am trying to be concerned about a lot less. Obviously, the reason you went to work with Stephen Covey, who's one of the great, I guess, personal development and business writers, leaders, philosophers of our, of certainly in my lifetime, I'm 57. So as much as I can remember back being in business, Covey was always a huge influence on all of us. And he said, one of the, the comments that he made that you, you stand by is make and keep a promise to yourself. What's a promise that you have made that you are keeping to yourself? Wow. I, I, the top of my list is that one-on-one time to the kids. I mean, I got, I got broken promises to myself all over the place on a lot of fronts. And I, I overpromise. And I, like I said, like they, these disciplines, they don't come natural to me at all. I overcommit. I'm, I'm the king of it. But the one promise I have kept um, for 28 years is I have spent one-on-one time with children, with my kids. And, and I can't, I don't have words to tell you how grateful I am for that one promise. Cause I, cause I wouldn't have, cause all I have, I have a different, unique relationship, beautiful relationship with all seven kids. I mean, and, and they're different. Oh my God. We could cast the breakfast club with this lot, right? They could not be any more different, but I, and, and, and the relationship is different with each one of them. But you know, I, I wish I had, I wish I had one on the business side. I could rattle off, but that one is just so dominant. It's funny. If I pull on that thread, something you said in an interview I heard, you said, if you think the answer is out there, then that's the problem. And it's funny how even with things like execution, when things don't get executed, people tend to blame or find a reason for it outside. But I love that answer that you take full responsibility for making the promise to yourself. And it sounds like a non-negotiable. Do you still find that in business today where people are pointing outside and they think the answer is outside of themselves as opposed to being inside the leader? Uh, it, it, it's, it, it's epidemic. Um, you know, don't even get me started on politics. Like that issue is just huge. And, um, and, and, and politicians know how to play that card. Wow. And feed that sort of victim mentality so well. Like they, they, they've got like a black belt in it. Um, but 
you know, Covey saying, if you think the problem's out there, that thought is the problem you have to own. And, you know, one of the things, one of the nice things about my job is I get to meet some extraordinary leaders. And my favorite ones, and I'm seeing faces, they tend to get this principle very personally. Like, at a personal level, they, they always look at themselves first. And for however much they're working on the organization, they're always working more on themselves. And th- that, that's really been a consistent thread. Um, yeah, I, I, I really think that that is a, you know, that's one of those first principles. Um, I, you know, you asked me earlier about a single point of, of emphasis, and I, and I brought up discouragement, and, and maybe that ought to take a back seat to this one. That just, you know, and, and Covey called it responsibility. He said, in his mind, that's what being responsible was, was, was to, because that's really where most of your influence lies. It, it's not in, it, it's, it's working on yourself. On the show a couple of weeks back, we had the great honour of interviewing a guy called Matt Best, who is one of the co-founders of a company in America called Black Rifle Coffee Company, which is now a $50 million company and it's only four years old. And he's a former Army Ranger and his book, Thank You for My Service, just went to number one around the world. And it was just a fantastic fantastic interview. And one of the things right towards the end of the conversation that I found most fascinating is that this is the Black Rifle Coffee Company, which has had extraordinary success in a very short period of time, is completely built upon the mission for the company. And I can even remember the mission statements to, to, to deliver coffee and culture to people who love America. And one of the things Matt said, which I'd like your perspective and I, and ideally an example of is that they have executed day in, day out, inside and outside the company, the mission for the company. And one of their key metrics for doing that is to employ 10,000 vets within the company and they're on their way. And what's so powerful, which I thought was absolute coffee gold, was the fact that they have this Every, every, every time you hear these guys talk on video, on a podcast, on their website, their merchandise, everything is about their mission. And they do a nice job of executing inside the company and outside the company to their people and to the customers. It's just a whole company is built on this. Yet, the reason I want your perspective on this is that I see companies that have this mission or purpose, it sits in the front of a business plan. The leader can't remember what it is. The board can't remember what it is. The people have no clue, yet they have this thing. Execution for me is not just in the strategic plans, but to me it also is if well, if you have this thing, and we should, because it's great, it should be greater than the company itself. Do you have a nice example of someone, Chris, that's taken a mission or a purpose within the company and has actually executed in an outstanding way? Yeah, um, just about every case study we have revolves around that dynamic. And when you, you ever read um, Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning? It's, to me, this is the one, I always go back to this, to this work, um, that how, how connected 
the, the human soul is to a sense of meaning and purpose. And organizations like this and leaders that have been able to create great purpose can weave other objectives into that purpose, have an enormous advantage in unseen ways. And, but then there's this other world where there isn't a macro grand purpose behind it. And you're a leader in that world and you don't have, you know, you're not trying, you know, you're not affecting, you know, the quality of life for cancer survivors. And you're not, you know, you're not doing any, anything that, uh, that, that anyone on a social or, or, or global level could evaluate and appreciate. And what we've started to see is um, micro purpose. I'll just invent a word. And that in the smallest things, in the smallest things, you can get, like like we had early on, we were working with Coca-Cola. This was before we understood any of the human dynamics around our work. And Tom Blackstock, don't ask me how I remember his name, but I do. And Tom Blackstock in 2003 was the head of supply chain for Coca-Cola. If you're out there, Tom, it's been too long. And Tom called the Franklin Covey Group into downtown Atlanta, the Coca-Cola headquarters. They wanted to talk about one of the pilots we were doing for them. It was a Minute Maid plant in Paw Paw, Michigan. And, he, and, and we, we looked at this results, and they had saved $600,000 in the first couple of weeks. We were really excited about that. And that's not why he wanted to talk to us. He said union employees were skipping lunch breaks. And he'd seen $600,000 in savings in a month, but he'd never seen Union employees skipping lunch breaks. And so we got talking about it. We went back and looked at it and talked about it. We don't think they knew they were skipping lunch breaks. They had somehow this whole project had become gamified. And they, it was a micro purpose. And they were into it. And it meant something to them. Um, Peter Senge in the fifth discipline talks about this. He bumped into the same thing. We started running into this fact. Matter of fact, we do case study work where we point a camera, you know, every time we get results, you know, Franklin Covey always wants to show other business leaders the results that people are getting with four disciplines. And every time we put a camera in somebody's face, we say, you know, to explain the results. They never want to talk about results. They want to talk about engagement. And the engagement often isn't connected to some great grand thing, but to the person it was. And you know what? to the person improving arrival experience was a big deal. And it was some result that nobody had ever been able to do before. And they figured it out and they got it. And it mattered to somebody and, and they're in their lives, they're winning. And so this, this idea, and it went back to this work that Frederick Kurtzberg did in the sixties, that there's all these reasons people will quit you. They'll quit over money, the benefits. They don't have a best friend at work. They don't like their working conditions. They got, there's a list of all these things that people will quit over. But those things don't drive engagement. Engagement is not the opposite of turnover. Engagement goes back to, am I making progress against meaningful work? And so the way we frame this for leaders is, look, do the people who work for you, they may have easy jobs, they may have hard jobs. But somewhere in there, and it doesn't have to be around their whole job, Somewhere in there, is there a winnable game? Is there something they can win at? And does it matter if it does? Now, if you've got a great super mission statement and you can link that micro mission statement, now you're now you're cooking with gas, right? But a lot of times you don't have. But the crap still applies. 
do the people who work for you feel like somewhere they've got a winnable game that matters, at least matters to you, their boss? And the last thing I'll say on this is it turned out to be a heck of a tip for parenting. Because if you have teenagers, you have drama and an unending amount of it. And what we started to do was not pay attention to the drama. We started to pay attention to the one question. Is there somewhere in Sarah's life where Sarah's winning, right? Or Mariah or Ben or Aaron or Natalie. Like, is there, does that kid have some place in their life where they're progressing and they're winning and it matters? And that's, that is, a, is, is our favorite truth <laughs> that's come from this work. Is there a winnable game, right, that, that really matters? One final question, Chris, before we let everybody know where to find you. It's really interesting talking to somebody who wrote a book called The Four Disciplines of Execution. People will read that book, but they have to execute by reading the book. What's <laughs> right. the one part of the book everybody wants to skip in the execution of the four disciplines of execution where they want to skip it, but they shouldn't skip it. Discipline one. Everybody thinks, oh, we got our goals. What's those lead measures? Eh. The psychology in getting the targeting right and separating the sustainment from the breakthrough is the part everybody gets wrong before they call us. Like when we get called it, nobody calls us, by the way, that doesn't try it first. Everybody's tried it first, but everybody gets and it's, it has to be the way we wrote the book. We've obviously written the book wrong in some way. <laughs> now, I mean, the right words are in, I, I take, I'm taking responsibility. The problem is not out there. You people are not the problem. We screwed up somewhere in the book. Pay really close attention to the dynamics around discipline one, particularly if you find yourself saying, lead measures is really hard. No. Getting the goal targeted right is hard. If you get the targets right, the leads show up. At least good hypotheses. If the leads feel hard, you didn't do discipline one right. So that's a great question. Love that question. I could spend three hours talking about this. It's a, it's a, it's a topic I'm actually very fascinated of the psychology and the execution of execution, but we're very mindful of your time. Chris, this has been just such a delight. It's so valuable. There's so much gold. People who want to follow up on you personally, the book, the work you do, and also your trip to Australia, where do you send people? All right. Um, hit me on LinkedIn, um, Chris McChesney, and I'll direct you. Or you can, um, there's a website, uh, Growth Faculty in Australia. Go to the Growth Faculty website um, uh, later this month and t- in two weeks. Wow, that's coming fast. Uh, we're in Sydney, uh, Melbourne, and um, you like how I said that, by the way, and Brisbane. Uh, nice. And um, uh, I, I, I absolutely, and, I, and I'm not, I know everyone says it, but I, I adore Australia. And, and I, I fortunately, I get to go back almost every year and I have the best time. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're there. And then uh, uh, let's see the website, uh, uh, Chris McChesney at 4DX.com is, is, a, is a direct website or, 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 just the, or just hit me on LinkedIn and I'll direct you. You are seen as being a world expert in this topic and it's easy to see why, Chris. We really appreciate you getting us into your calendar of what's going on in your world. Thank you, mate. You've just dropped so much gold for us. It's been terribly valuable and uh, tra- safe travels out to our beautiful country, and I hope we put on some good weather for you, mate. Mm. Thank you so much. Um, swing by if you can, and, and, and gentlemen, thanks for the questions. Really very thought-provoking today. I really appreciate it. No problems, and watch out for the drop bears. <laughs> <laughs> Getting your mojo working. 
This is the Mojo Radio Show. This is quite curious for me. I went into Spotify and I put in, give me a song that was about getting it done. This is what I got. Lola, play Getting It Done by Riston Ingram, please. Now, the reason I find this so fascinating is that when you go to Spotify and put in Getting It Done and search, you get Riston's song. It has no lyrics. It's just a beautiful, as you can hear, it's a beautiful piece of guitar music. And I kept on forwarding through the, through the song thinking there's got to be lyrics or some sort of uplifting <laughs> David Goggins. Looking to be get motivated. David Coaster, Ray <laughs> Cash Care. But, and I, what I thought about this is how beautiful that when you really go back to it, there is no great trick to execution, which Chris talked about, is it's just focusing. And that's what that piece of music is about, is just chill, relax, breathe, and focus. It's actually quite simple. You pick out the most important stretch goal, work Mm -hmm. out what are you going to do about it, work out the next step, and do it. And Mm -hmm. I just find it. Way cool that a song is called Getting It Done. And the funny thing is there are a number of songs on Spotify around this topic and quite often many of them have no lyric. It's just beautiful music to contemplate. Don't you find that a bit interesting? I do. I I really like instrumentals too and that sounds like a really good one. So I, I will actually have a listen to that in full at some stage. Absolutely. I have added it to my writing list. The other thing that I found, yeah, in what, when I was... Songwriting list? Yeah. When I, yeah, lyric, lyric list. When I was listening to Riston, it made me think of Akshay Nanavate. Does that name ring a bell to you? Yeah. Part of the show. Uh, three or four weeks we'll go. Episode 238. The Dark Man. So two reasons I think it's good to include this. Number one is I'm endeavouring to get darts in every show. Tick. But number <laughs> you brought it up. But number two. I did. I'm changing the opener to cars. <laughs> number two, I think when we talk about execution, we're too busy running from one thing to another and we don't give enough thought to what really matters what's the most important next step. And that's, uh, that, that story by the Buddha of you throw the first dart, then you stop to think about the second dart. To me, I think we're getting a thread through our show here, thanks to Akshay and Chris, about the things you can do in order to make sure the second dart lands on the bull. When we think of leadership and hearing Chris talk about it, and I've heard Chris talk about a lot of stuff, gone through the book. But I reckon a lot of people think that this is about execution in the office, like office plans, business plans. And I think that's very true. But I also think we should consider and not forget the man or woman who keeps the wheels turning, like the driver of a truck, a person at a cafe, the chef, the farmer, the teacher, the guy in a factory or a meat processing shed, the forklift driver, road worker, The postman. Postman. Shop assistants, the military personnel, they're getting it done. Anybody who has to execute their own personal plans as well as execute plans for their team of whatever size, I think we should also consider the working class man. Do you know where I'm going with this? Bonzi. We're out. 
is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peter speaking. See you next time. <laughs>